Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, verse 24, and then 28 through 30. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. Is this man, Jehoiakim, a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. This is the word of the Lord. So you know I love history, and one of the coolest, uh, well, probably maybe not cool, most important events in world history uh, took place in the summer of 1940. Um, And if you you like history, you're probably familiar uh, with the events of the summer of 1940. Uh, It it tends to just be called the Battle of Britain. And uh, the Battle of Britain was mainly an air battle. There were ships involved too, but mainly an air battle where uh, the island of Britain um, was trying to fend off an invasion uh, from Nazi Germany. Uh, They had defeated France and had basically most of the the control of the continent, and they said, well, we're going to go after uh, Britain as well. And so um, what most historians say is had had Germany won the Battle of Britain, uh, World War II would have looked very different, right? There was nowhere for them, for anybody to get a hold on any of the land in Europe if if they had controlled Britain. So um, the heroes of the the Battle of Britain were, uh, you know, a handful of British pilots, and they look kind of like this. Um, these are the guys, right? When we think of the, the heroes of, of the Battle of Britain, it's, it's these pilots who were going up, they say, sometimes four or five times a day for missions. They'd get done, refuel the plane, and go back up. And they'd, you know, duct tape the bullet holes and, you know, just send them right back up. It was uh, just an amazing thing. It, uh, it, the, the physical stress that these guys endured is, um, is, is just legendary stuff. Um, and, and they were doing this to protect their homeland, so they had it all on the line. Everybody knew the importance of this moment in history. But I've, I've been listening to a, a, a podcast uh, about the Battle of Britain, and it was it pointed, pointed out something to me that, that I, I guess probably hadn't thought of enough. Um, and, and that is that um, there was an army of people, of unsung heroes, right? These are, these are the heroes of the Battle of Britain, but there was an army of unsung heroes that, that would, they'd be behind the scenes that made it possible for the pilots to do their, their jobs, right? There were, there were um, truckers who had to get in the, the, the supplies that they needed, right? The, fueling these things multiple times a day, it, it took an incredible effort. Uh, there were mechanics that had to keep these things flying, and they were sometimes just in pieces. And it was like, this is all we've got. You've got to get up there, though. And, and it's amazing stories of, you know, sometimes there were just minutes in between the next mission, and they're like, hey, this thing's on fire. You've got to get it out and get it ready to go back up again. Um, there were 
you know, around the clock people taking care of things so that these guys could go up. Um, there were, you know, plane factories. They were building them, and as soon as they came off the, the assembly line, they were taking them. I mean, it was within minutes and days of these planes being constructed in these factories, they were going up because they were just, they had a shortage of planes and a shortage of pilots, and they just had to get it all up there. And so ammunition factories were getting bombed every night, uh, every day, but they were still having to get that stuff done because they knew if these guys didn't have what they needed, there's no battle of Britain. There's no, there's no defense. Um, and so the, the thousands, millions of people uh, of Britain who took part in, in, um, in the Battle of Britain, you know, these guys get most of the credit, but there's just an army of un, unsung heroes that saved, that saved their nation. And so this morning we're going to talk about another unsung hero. Uh, it, we are to Joseph as we get through the characters of the Bible, or I mean of the Advent story, and I, I think it's fair to say that Joseph definitely gets less attention and less fame uh, than his amazing and deservedly so wife, Mary, uh, who we spent time talking about last week. And, and so this morning, we're, we're just going to take a, a look at Joseph's life and see what there is to learn from him as well, this unsung hero who was an incredibly patient and, and courageous man. So let's pray together, and, and we'll get into his life. Father, we are thank you for the stories that we have that are true, that we can see your hand in history, we can see your plan of salvation, your plan of redemption in the most incredible of stories, and we're thankful for each of the people who played a hand in it. Father, teach us through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, our, we're going to switch over to the to book of Matthew for this morning. We're going to look at, at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divor- divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but, he, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, So as we get started talking about Joseph, uh, let me give you some, some background uh, on him and, and, and some more on this uh, situation. And I guess we probably need to call it techni- technical lineage stuff. Because in the very beginning of Matthew, uh, and then also in the third chapter of Luke, uh, there is the, the family tree of Jesus, if you will. Uh, his genealogy. But if you've ever read them, if you've ever studied them, 
you know that they are different from one another, which is odd, right? That the, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew is different than the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke. There's the, so what's going on there? Um, so I'll just tell you, I'm going to have to wade through a whole bunch of stuff and, and, and try to summarize it the best that I can. Just know that there are innumerable numbers of opinions and theories but the majority of folks think today that that Matthew is, is covering Jesus' paternal genealogy. Paternal, right? From his father. And then Luke is covering um, his maternal lineage. Maternal, his, from his mom. I, I'm, I'm going to stick with that theory, right? There's arguments for it, and, but we'll just stick with that one for now. Um, and and I, so... Yeah, just kind of this is important stuff to, to know as we get into Joseph and, and why he matters and why his life matters. Um, because there's this long enduring prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David, right? This is not new information. The, the, the Messiah, the Christ, would, would come out of, out of the line of David. He would be a king, you know, like his father David, all that stuff. And, and so anybody who's going to claim to be the Messiah is going to have to show how they fit that prophecy, right? How they are in this line of David. But there's a problem. There's, there's, there's a little bit uh, of an issue. Some people think that there was a break in the line of David by a guy named Jeconiah. Um, he's also referred to in Scripture as Coniah and then also Jehoiakim, which we just read about uh, in our Jeremiah passage. So this guy was a king of Judah. He was of the line of David. He would have been like his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson or something, right, where he goes in. But he is, he is, you know, from Solomon. He goes down. That's his lineage. He's a king of Judah. But he's a bad guy. He is not a good guy. He doesn't follow God. He's just a bad guy. And in and, and that passage we just read, some people think that um, God tells the descendants that they will, none of them will ever be king again. So none of the descendants of, of Jeconiah or Kenai or Jehoiakim, whatever you want to call him, um, will, they'll ever be king. He's removing them from the, from the line of David. And, and some people call that the curse of Jeconiah. Never be kings again. Summarizing a lot, there's... there's disagreement about whether or not all that happened. His son was a guy named Zerubbabel. If you've read the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel shows up and he's a really important guy. He's the leader of the people, if you will. So does he fit? Is he out? Who is he? And maybe that was just a, a mention of something that it was in his lifetime. But what are we talking about here, right? Some people think maybe this wasn't a permanent curse. Um, maybe we're just meaning he's not going to get to play a role in the messianic line, right? So that's, that's something ab about this guy. And he shows up in the genealogy in Matthew. Jeconiah is in Matthew. And so that leads people to be confused. How does this work? And, and Joseph, what, what's going on here? So there are people who are really upset with that and say, well, there's no way that Jesus can be the Messiah because Jeconiah is in his, his genealogy and there's this curse. So, what's going on here? Well, without getting too much into the birds and the bees uh, in the sermon, 
Um, let me just say that it matters a lot whose lineage we are talking about in the book of Matthew. Um, it clearly seems to be Joseph's, right? Um, Joseph's name is mentioned here. It seems like this is his lineage. So if it's Joseph's lineage, remember we're avoiding birds and the bees conversations here, but if it's Joseph's lineage, right, this would not be a, a genealogy of blood. This can't be a blood genealogy because Joseph isn't the father of Jesus. We know that. He is the adoptive father. He is the stepfather, whatever you want to call him. He's not the blood father of Jesus. So I think it's best to understand what Matthew is doing is tracing what some have called the legal line of Joseph, right? The descendants based on his inheritance, based on the legality, Joseph is there. He is in the line of David. Um, so, so Joseph was a descendant of David. He was a descendant of, of other kings. If that's the case, then Jesus has the legal rights of the king of David. So that's his inheritance. He has the legal rights there. And then, if you look at Luke's genealogy, you will see, if that's Mary's genealogy, which a lot of people think that that's what this is, um, Mary is of the lineage of David. Right? She, is, she is also there. Her bloodline runs through David, except instead of going through Solomon and ultimately Jeconiah and, and getting into all that mess, her bloodline runs through Nathan, who is one of David's other sons. You remember Nathan. Um, that's her bloodline. But she is, you know, David would be her great-great-great-great-grandfather. Right? She's in that same line. So, if there's such a thing as the curse of Jeconiah, which we don't know that there is or not, it does not apply to Jesus. So people who say, well, Jesus can't be the king of, king of the Jews because of Jeconiah and this curse, eh, Joseph's not the father. But Mary, on the other hand, her line does come through David, through the line of Nathan, and there's no curse of Jeconiah on that. So Jesus has all the legal and genetic genealogy rights to be the king of the Jews in the line of David. And that's what Matthew's trying to do, and that's what Luke's trying to do. So there's just a little bit of background to tell us why, as we get into Joseph, why he matters. So, he's a descendant of David. That's good. We, we, we get his genealogy. We know that he qualifies here. What else do we know about him? Honestly, not that much. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me that we don't know that much more about Joseph. All right, we, and we'll just cover all that really quickly. First, did you know that Joseph never talks in the Bible. There are no recorded words of Joseph. I find that strange, right? We have uh, all kinds. We have Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon, and there's other people that we do know their words. Nothing from Joseph. He doesn't speak. Maybe that means he's strong, silent type, right? I don't know. But there's no words of Joseph recorded in Scripture. No prayer, no song, no praise, none of the other stuff we see right in, in, the, in the story of Jesus. We do know that Joseph was a man whose life was complicated and it was full of hardship because of what God gave him to do. We know that he was a just man. We just read that in Matthew 1. We know that he was merciful and kind. He could have, been, um, he could have handled Mary a very different way, but he didn't because of his character. And, and there are two theories about uh, who 
Joseph is at this point in the story. And the first one is that he was a Jewish man of normal age. And for uh, of normal age to get married. And so for the Jewish culture, that would, at this point in time, he would have been somewhere between 16 and 18. Remember last week we said Mary was probably 13 or 14. Uh, Jewish men to be married were, were a little bit older, kind of in the 16, 17, 18-year-old range. So first theory, that's where Joseph is. And uh, he's, he's, a, he's a young man. He's considered an adult, but he's trying to get his life started. The second theory is that he was an older man who had been widowed and, and was needing a wife. This, this theory is kind of interesting. We don't know one way or the other, right? So there's, no, there's no proof. There's really no argument, arguing which one it is. But um, if it is this, it kind of makes him uh, similar to, to someone like Boaz that we saw when we studied the book of Ruth. Maybe he's an older man and he had this kind of protective heart for, for young Mary and, and he you know, that was part of their, you know, dynamic and relationship. We don't know. But he isn't, he isn't seen, he isn't heard from in the Gospels after, uh, after Jesus turns about 12. Remember when he gets, um, he stays in the temple and his parents can't find him. Again, Joseph doesn't speak, but we, we hear that his, his dad is looking for him. That's all we, we know he's still alive at that point, And then after that, we don't know. Most people assume that, that Joseph dies before, between that point and somewhere when Jesus starts his public ministry because Mary is traveling around with the disciples, so probably she doesn't have a husband at this point. We also know that he was betrothed to a virgin named Mary, and, and we talked about that betrothal last week. We said this process is more formal than a normal engagement, right? There's no just giving the ring back. Um, it took an act of divorce to end a betrothal. So um, it, it was a very official thing. They were, in a lot of ways, considered to be m- legally married by being betrothed. And, and that normally was a, a year-long process. And, and during that process, the, the potential groom was busy, right? He had to be, he had to be busy about—he he had to build himself a house for his new wife. And so typically that was either a standalone house on his family's property, or it was like an add-on room, you know, an apartment— next, you know, kind of attached to his family's place. But either way, that was part of his responsibility to get married. You had to build your own place. And so he was probably busy doing that at this point. He was also busy saving up money with his parents uh, so that he, they could pay the dowry to Mary's parents uh, for marriage, right? You had to give them money to, to seal the deal, to, to be able to marry her there had to be a, there was a financial transaction. So he was working hard, saving up money so that he could pay the dowry for Mary. We know from verse 24 that Joseph, it says he took his wife. That's, that's a, a technical term that means they got married. And so there was a betrothal process lasted up, up to about a year. And then at some point there would be a wedding and the whole community would be involved in that. Lots of dancing and celebration and all of the stuff and, um, and then, then he was able to, to take her home. She became his wife, and they lived together. So we do know that before Jesus is born, that process happened, and she came to live with him. They, they are now married, although we are told that the, the marriage was not consummated, which would have um, obviously been ab- abnormal for that time. So, um, and then we also know that Joseph lives in Bethlehem, then he's also going to have to move to Egypt and ultimately to Nazareth. We're told that he's a carpenter. 
Right? That, that's, the, that's, that's what we've always heard about Joseph, Joseph the carpenter. And, and the word for carpenter is, is a neat word. It's, it's the word tecton. And we get all kinds of words based from that. But uh, Joseph was a tecton. And, and one way to translate that is carpenter. It's probably best translated as craftsman, which I think is kind of interesting. It, 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 there's a, a connotation that he, he's able to do more than just one thing. So he probably worked with wood primarily. That would have been the more common material they had during those days. So yeah, he probably was a carpenter in that sense. But he would have also had to been able to work with stone. So he would have been a mason as well. Um, and, and he would have probably been able to do things with metal too. And, and, and so uh, he would have been in some ways, you know, a, a craftsman of all trades, a handyman who would fix things of, of all kinds. So people would come to him and bring them their broken things to say, hey, can you fix this, right? This farming tool, can you fix it? And, and he would do his best. Uh, he fixed doors, roofs, fences, uh, f- you know, all kinds of things. That's kind of what he did. And everybody knew, hey, if I need help, I'm going to go to Joseph. He's going to be the guy that can help me. He's not an academic elite. He's not an aristocrat. He's a worker, right? He is a laborer, but a laborer who knew a trade, right? He was, uh, he was a skilled man because of, he, because of the title tecton. We know that he wasn't just a goof, right? He, he, was a, he was a skilled man at what he did. So, a handyman who lived in small towns, who never wrote anything or spoke anything of lasting value, he doesn't have a cool song like Mary does. He, uh, you know, Joseph doesn't know. You got, y'all got that? Good. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was no proclamation like Zechariah or Simeon. He's not the center of attention. So, so why are we talking about him this morning? Why are we talking about this guy? Joseph isn't flashy. He's not the central part of the narrative. He's just an ordinary guy trying to do his best to live an honorable life. Being faithful to God, faithful to his family. That's why. That's why we're talking about him. That's why I'm preaching about Joseph on an Advent Sunday. Because I think metaphorically speaking, most of us are more likely to find ourselves leading a donkey to Bethlehem right? Think of the Christmas cards, right? We're that guy. We're that person in the story more than we are any any of the the other characters. Most of us aren't going to be famous. I don't know if any of you are famous. If you are, I apologize. I don't know it yet, but (laughs) I'm not famous either. Most of us aren't famous. Maybe, yeah, there may be some stories I need to know if you are famous, but Most of us aren't going to be famous. Most of us aren't going to have a flashy life. Most of us will spend our time as peripheral characters in the gospel narrative, in the story, doing our best to live honorable lives, trying to be faithful to God, trying to be faithful to families. That's what most of us are going to do. We've been talking this Advent about some of the characters of this amazing story. And, and I think Joseph is a valuable, valuable character in this story. And he has something to teach us. First, I have to just say there's value in obedience. Again, not a flashy thing. This doesn't make for great sermons, right? But there is value in obedience. 
you know, not to get too picky, but Joseph didn't even get a real angel. He got a vision of an angel in a dream, right? I mean, at least Mary got to, like, to see one. Poor Joseph. Anyway, right? He's told in a dream, hey, this amazing thing's going to happen. Just be obedient to it. Just let it happen. Don't do anything. Right? Take Mary as your wife. And, and I just have to say, this is a, probably a much harder thing than I always assumed it would be. You hear that? Oh, take Mary's wife. Okay, great. That's a whole lot harder, uh, especially in the, in the society that they were in, to, to have done that. Because Mary is already pregnant. And, and because she's already pregnant, there are two theories that, in everybody's minds, right? There's two th- possibilities of what could have happened in everybody's mind. And the first is that Mary has been unfaithful to the betrothal, right? And that there's somebody else in secret. That's option number one. And the second is that it's Joseph's baby. Now, this would probably be the better option in, in, in eyes of society, but it's still not a good one. It's not a good look for Joseph and his reputation and his standing in town. It was his fiance, but he wasn't supposed to be spending any time with her, right? That's not what's supposed to be happening. So for her to be pregnant, it's one of those two options. And if it's the second option, then it's Joseph's fault. And so there are some commentators who say, Joseph did an amazing, you know, commendable thing by doing this because he, in some ways he sacrificed his reputation for hers and he took the blame and said, yeah, it was my fault. We were, she was betro- we were betrothed and I took advantage of that situation. That's basically what happens here and that's what everyone would have thought about him as a result of what he did. He took her on as his wife and by doing so, so took the shame off of her and put it on himself. Um, it's a brave thing to do. It's an obedient thing to do because that's what he was, had, was told to do. And it just reminds me that the right thing to do is rarely the easy thing. The right thing to do is rarely the easy thing. We live in a world of easy, but it's not always makes it, doesn't always make it right. Doing the right thing is hard. And, and he's also obedient when he's told to take his family to Egypt, right? In the middle of the night, boom, oh, it's time to go. We've got to get out of here. Herod's coming for us. Let's go. Well, that's not an easy thing to do either, but he does it. And then he's obedient when he's told, hey, it's time, it's over. Now pick up your life once more and go back, uh, go back to Nazareth and, and start over. Joseph provides for his family. He teaches his children. We know he's at least active somewhat as a parent. Again, nothing flashy, but Joseph's so, uh, obedience should still be talked about and should still be celebrated. And, and the next two things I want to tell you about that I think we should learn from him are kind of two sides of the same coin. Have, have you ever been convinced that you are too ordinary for God to use? I'm not smart enough. I'm not a good teacher. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not dynamic enough. I'm not influential do you ever doubt that God could use you to have an influence on others? Right? Maybe to have an influence on your, your friends or your family. Like, I'm just, I'm just me. I'm not anything special. You think that the little actions of your life make no difference. 
I would just remind you with, with Joseph as our example that simple acts of obedience, simple acts of kindness and grace, simple conversations with your grandchildren, any of those simple things can be a turning point in a person's life. You just don't know what doing the thing that you know you should do, a simple, ordinary thing that's the right thing, you just don't know the difference that that could make. It could be a turning point for somebody's life. It could also be a turning point for your own life. Uh, Beth and I have a, a, a friend, the most ordinary guy you've ever met. He talks like an ordinary guy. He, he, nothing about him is, is, is special or extraordinary. But he was in construction. And he got invited uh, because he could build stuff, they, we said, hey, we've got this mission trip. We're going down to a foreign country. We could sure use somebody who knows how to build stuff. And he didn't really want to do it. Man, I, to, I don't travel. I'm, a, I'm an ordinary guy. I don't do things like that. Well, guess what? Eventually he said yes. And he said yes to this mission trip. And I'm just telling you, there's never been a more extraordinary person on the mission field than this guy. And he's an ordinary guy. He goes and helps build a house. Well, then what happens? He, he said he was willing to say yes to that one trip, and the next thing you know, now he's on these other trips, and these other trips, and these other trips. And the next thing you know, he's a leader. And, and he's, he's probably built 50 houses in, in Belize just because he knew how to do it. He's never preached a sermon in Belize. He's never led a Bible study. That's not what he's called to do. He's an ordinary guy. But his life has been changed. He's helped more poor families and other people understand the love of God than anybody I can think of. And he'll never write a book. He'll never be famous. You'll never have heard of him before. But his life preaches a sermon louder than, than any that I ever could. Right? So if you think that you are too ordinary, if you think you don't have an important part to play in God's kingdom, then you need to step back and look at Joseph the carpenter. What a life. You can be used by God to do amazing things in your ordinariness if you're just willing to be available for him. So the flip side of that coin, right, is thinking that your life is ordinary, which in fact it's not. There is nothing ordinary about your life. Moms, there's no ordinary day in your day. There's nothing ordinary about being a mom or about raising kids and, and all of that. Fixing meals and changing diapers. There's nothing ordinary about that. That is a God-given call. There, there's no such thing as an ordinary job. There's no such thing. You're just, I'm just a whatever is no such thing. There's no just a in anything. God created it. God made it. He planned it. And he put you where you're supposed to be. So it's not ordinary. God made you a son and a daughter, a mom, a dad, an employee, a grandparent, a neighbor, a friend, or whatever that you are for a reason, and none of it is ordinary. If you're ever tempted to say, I'm just a, you need to remember Joseph. This, this just a carpenter? No. Just a handyman? No. Just a dad? No. He was so much more than that. God used his life, and it was not ordinary. Your life is a miracle, just like Joseph's. And God can do more than we all, or can we, all than we ask or imagine 
in our lives and through our lives for other people. You just never know. If we will be available, if we'll be willing, obedient, if we'll do the small things, do the hard things, do the things that are right, not expecting credit, but hoping that God will work miracles through your ordinary life. Let's pray. Father, we are again are so thankful for what you have done in the life of a man like Joseph. We don't have his words, but we have his life. We have his actions. God, let them speak loudly into our lives. We're never just a farmer. We're never just a mom. We're never just a dad. We're never just a grandparent. We're never just an anything. You have created us and and you created the good works in advance that you wanted us to do. So all of it matters and none of it's ordinary. Father, even if none of us will ever be famous here, help us to be famous in your kingdom for being willing to be used for your kingdom's purposes. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen.